Hello and welcome back to the Redundant Rufus Podcast. This episode I will be talking about the Silmarillion and how I came across it, my first impressions, and how I'd like to see it be put to screen. Now, there's been a decent amount, but not many, live-action renditions of Tolkien's Legendarium, but this is one that I know would be incredibly difficult to do, and we'll get into that later. But first, I wanted to say thank you again for those that have followed me on my podcast journey this past month. I'm grateful that I'm starting to make this a hobby. I enjoy being able to speak about things that interest me, and yes, even the filler episode content that I did the other day. I enjoy all of it because it gets me gets my voice out there and allows me to be exposed to those that would be interested in what I have to say. Now, as I mentioned in a couple of previous episodes, coming into Tolkien's Legendarium was a completely new experience for me. I had not read anything like it before. And it took me some time. I'm a slow reader uh, by nature, but it took me a while to finish The Lord of the Rings because of how much depth that Tolkien injected in his works and allowing us to visualize for ourselves these great individuals like Aragorn and, and Frodo and Elrond and being able to believe that this world, yes, fictional, but that's tiny part of us saying, you know, it could be real. So once I had finished The Lord of the Rings, I immediately started to read The Hobbit. I finished that in short order, and I was able to grab the, my father's copy of The Silmarillion. Now, I wasn't fully prepared to read The Silmarillion. I don't know if anyone is, because it's the life work of Tolkien. It's what he started in his younger years up until the time of his passing. It encompasses an abbreviated version of everything from the creation of Arda or the world up to and including the uh, Third Age. The thing that struck me most about the Silmarillion was I didn't fully expect or know what to expect from um, this book. I was somewhat aware that it was mainly historical in nature, that it was giving high points regarding characters and events and battles. When I was reading the first chapters dealing with the creation of Arda, that it was produced through music, I thought that was an interesting, very interesting take. And I know Tolkien was very into music, and it's injected a lot into his poetry that he writes, not not just or wrote not just for the Lord of the Rings or the Hobbit, but all of his all of his stories that music is a is a bridge it's a linking point across peoples and cultures across spans of time we know tolkien was a very devout catholic he was a devout christian and any author regardless of your beliefs you know you you can't help but inject yourself into the writing into the story it isn't always intentional tolkien abstained allegory he he didn't like it, but at least in the part of writing your story, creating it. He understood, and we all can't help but have stories be allegorical to ourselves or to the to how things are right now in the world. And reading about the music of the Ainur and learning of Eru Iluvatar or the One and how the Valar and the Maiar entered you know, the space that Arda would become, injecting music everywhere. That's what sprung life, created the, the mountains and the oceans. And then you have Morgoth coming in with his discord that just corrupting. And that has a very deep Christian foundation in understanding uh, the creation, in understanding uh, Lucifer, in corrupting th things that are good, that are pure. Can't create, but only manipulate and corrupt. And I like that 
was ever present in the early part of the Silmarillion. But the Silmarillion, there are so many names. I have to say this. There are so many names, so many events, so many um, characters. Understandably so. This isn't a criticism by far. It's historical, so you're going to be passing through ages before time started to be recorded, you know, in the, t- the, you know, the years of the sun and the moon with the two trees, with the lanterns. There were many, many thousands of years. There's going to be new people or events transpiring as you go along, as you read. And that was a, that was a bit overwhelming. I didn't expect that while reading the Silmarillion. Now, it took me uh, probably a couple of weeks to read the Silmarillion. It isn't a, a really a long book. It's hundreds of pages, but it isn't, it's not a textbook. It wasn't reading, well, it wasn't reading Lord of the Rings. That's a very long book. But there is a lot of content. So I really had to take my time and try to understand the timeline and understanding just the progression of this, this, uh, this history. But I was fully introduced to Tolkien's languages. It was intimated in Lord of the Rings with the elves speaking or some dwarvish language or some hobbit language in there, Westron, uh, of course, being the, you know, the common language. Seeing Quenya, for example, which I, I believe was Tolkien's favorite language that he created, the most beautiful, or so much of the language that you're exposed to, because he wrote many languages, over a dozen, Quenya is ever-present. Pronouncing words or names in Quenya, I just, I'm terrible at pronouncing them. I read the bulk of the works of Tolkien in my head. I don't read out loud. But when I started to, some years ago, to read out loud, I, I realized, oh my gosh, I cannot pronounce half of these words. Now, my father could, or he, he can pronounce those words. He was familiar with linguistic inspirations that Tolkien had regarding the creation of his own languages. But I'm looking at different things like, the, for example, the Battle of Unnumbered Tears. I'm not going to bother pronouncing the elvish name out loud. I'm not going to do that. It sounds like a nincompoop, and I don't want to offend uh, any a Tolkien linguist out there. Again, I'm not a Tolkien scholar, and I don't want to pretend like I am. My intention here is to just give my take, my impression on the works of Tolkien as I started reading them. Now, this I read the Silmarillion for the first time when I was 18, I believe, you know, I was 18 years old. So this wasn't the type of book that I would have normally gravitated to, but because I had read Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit, and you can listen to those things in my previous podcast episodes, but reading The Silmarillion was really my full exposure, like jump into the Middle-earth pool, if you will, you know, what Tolkien had created. This went beyond 15 to 20 years that The Lord of the Rings Uh, time covers and the year or so that the hobbit covers this was thousands of years possibly tens of thousands you know not including the you know the time before the years of the sun and moon but i also have to mention the books of lost tales parts one and two those were very helpful i read those in short order because they gave much more description on what i had read or covered in the summerillion like the tale of baron and luthien the Fall of Gondolin, especially, that's one of my favorite stories. I'll get into that later. The different variation of peoples or characters' names, like Morgoth was Melko, 
the Noldor were the gnomes they were referred to as, or Noldoli, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. Again, I love these works, I just can't pronounce 80% of the words and names worth a darn. But the Cimmerillion being effectively an aggregation of, of Middle-earth's tales, some of the great heroic tales, it showed how much Tolkien had thought out these stories. And looking at his other works in The Lost Tales and Unfinished Tales and the histories and the letters of Tolkien, how much he thought out, how often he thought this this story should change this way or this was the first very, you know, first change in the story. That's like when Christopher Tolkien released the three, Tolkien's three great tales of Middle-earth, Baron and Luthien, um, the Children of Hurin, and the Fall of Gondolin. Seeing the genesis and the evolution of these great tales, it shows that he wasn't looking to make a quick buck, or he wasn't impatient by any way in producing what he loved. He loved what he was making. He believed that this was something that people across the world, across cultures and beliefs and languages could visualize and create a secondary world for themselves and believing that through this secondary world that exists in the mind that this world lives on and it was constantly on his mind throughout his life that's ever present and that's another thing i enjoy because when you see an author's passion for what for the story that they're telling it makes what they write much more believable much more impactful and they're not just trying to take advantage of your dollar you know making money was the last thing tolkien had on his mind and his works you know the lord of the rings and the hobbit of course he he got a decent amount of revenue but it wasn't something that he bragged about it wasn't something that he looked for he made a special story world and he wanted to share it regardless again what your beliefs were but when i was reading the silmarillion when i started i didn't know what the silmarillion was like why or why the book was called the silmarillion it wasn't until when i was reading about the stones that feanor had produced that captured the lights or the essence rather rather of the two trees of valinor laurelin and telperion did i say this correctly i'm gonna keep saying that because i i uh, i i butcher the pronunciation of these i'm sorry but uh that they were actual stones precious gems i'm gonna stipulate as i said in a previous video this is not going to be a tolkien lore podcast there are a million and one content creators who talk about the world of Tolkien much more specifically. I just want to clarify that what I discuss are my first impressions being exposed to these works and some of my opinions. Nothing more. I, I don't need to get into any deep lore, deep doctrine, if you will, regarding Tolkien's Legendarium. But with that being said, why the Silmarils were so important what made them so enticing to Morgoth, why he took them, and how the Noldor, one of the houses of the Eldar, took it personally. And because of these precious gems, that's why there were so many wars, so many battles, because Morgoth took them, and the Noldor were constantly trying to get them back. I was impressed by, even more so, by Tolkien's storytelling how so many of the stories that he talks about are unique but they're interconnected and they contribute to the overall plot some of my favorite stories were the battle of unnumbered tears and again i'm not going to pronounce 
the elvish version of that name. Uh, the Fall of Gondolin, the War of Wrath, the duel with Sauron, as mentioned uh, towards the end of the Silmarillion, and the disaster of the Gladden Fields. Those are my favorite stories. And the three great tales of Middle-earth, you know, I like them too. Baron and Luthien is a very great um, heroic tale, both on the part of Baron and Luthien, and how the love for one person can make you do just about anything. And uh, again, in the previous podcast, I talked about how I can't stand Tom Bombadil. My one criticism, the other being about the children of Hurin marrying each other because they're unaware they were siblings. I, I understand it's a small detail in the overall tale, but it's still hard to ignore, and it's really gross and awkward. Call me juvenile. I just never liked that. But uh, outside of that, the rest of the story is great. So I'll start with the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, why I consider that one of my favorite stories. So throughout the First Age, the First Age was the shortest of the ages as recorded in Tolkien's works. It endured, it was much less than a thousand years. The Second Age lasted about 35 or 3600 years, and the Third Age lasted just over 3000 years. But the First Age was short, and much happened before the First Age, which is a decent chunk of the Silmarillion, but the hundreds of years of the centuries that we do have stories about or details, the elves are constantly trying to get the Silmarils back, specifically the Noldor. And unfortunately, other groups of elves are caught in the crossfire, as well as some of the houses of the Adain, like the men of Hador, for example, or of Dorlomen. That there are casualties because of the lust, the, the envy, the greed, and the revenge that's in the hearts of the sons of Feanor trying to get the Silmarils back. Because if they actually all were united, everyone in Beleriand, then they would have stood a better chance of defeating Morgoth. But there were petty quarrels, and again, the, the theme of revenge. That's a big theme, because it, revenge, it's irrational, it's an emotional reaction, and it makes you act unlike you normally would. And it makes you vulnerable to mistakes. Your guard is down. So in the Battle of Unnumbered Tears, that was made known when the elves were just incredibly anxious to just fight Morgoth and destroy them. And so Morgoth sends out a large army of orcs trying to bait the elves to attack, which is what they did. And then that's when Morgoth's plans are put into effect. He unleashes great creatures. The Easterlings turn on the, the Alliance or the Union of Mithros. And a gigantic battle appears. And one of the great surprises when I read was when an army of dwarves came. It's a brief account, but Tolkien mentions that these dwarves of Belagost, I forget what the, the name of the dwarven house was, but they were um, invulnerable to fire, effectively. Their armor was so strong that even the great uh, dragon Glaurung couldn't fully defeat them. And it's a sm again, it's a small part, but I enjoy that part of the battle because you can just imagine these scary-looking dwarves or these decked-out, just incredible armor. Now, not every, as we know, not every uh, house of elves were, were there. We know that Thingol refused to leave Doriath with any men. There are only a, or elves, only a couple left. And Nargothron didn't send any. So if they had helped, brought their full force, then the battle 
more than likely would have turned in favor of the the alliance. Uh, however, that didn't happen and because of the betrayal of the Easterlings and the dwarves leaving prematurely after their king was slain. You know, that really put a damper on the men and elves' optimism that the day would end well for them. But this is something that I would love to see. Now, there's there's certainly paintings, but the brave stand of the men of the House of Dorlomin, or in Dorlomin, the House of Hador. So we know that Huor and Hurin, fathers, you know, they were brothers, and respectively their sons, Tur and Turin, they have their own great tales. But the defense of this house, effectively, it was a living shield, a shield wall. So you can think of a, a Roman formation, a phalanx formation. Those have happened throughout history. But this one, Tolkien really stops the, the story for, for a moment to describe that these men made a shield wall, a living wall, to protect Turgon and the his elves of Gondolin protecting their retreat and these men gave way inch by inch so seeing that on screen having dragons and balrogs and trolls and countless hordes of orcs just pounding on them but they only give way inch by inch and of course the great heroic end of um of Huor and Hurin takes out dozens of orcs and trolls with I think it was a, a battle axe that he got off a corpse and he just does his thing until he gets uh, you know captured but that defense I would love to see uh, put to screen my other favorite story was the fall of Gondolin if there's any story in Tolkien's legendarium it would be the fall of Gondolin now seeing the collapse of a great city isn't exactly something you'd be ecstatic about so necessarily but the fact that it involved or Tolkien really took time to detail the different houses in Gondolin, the different um, leaders of those houses, how they were all unique and how they stood until the end in trying to protect their beloved city. But as we remember, the fall of Gondolin came about because of the betrayal of Meglin. Meglin? Meglin? Again, pronunciation. He was caught outside of the, uh, the mountains surrounding Gondolin by Morgoth spies, and he hated that uh, Tuor was wed to Edril, and they had a son because Maglin wanted Edril for his own, and so Maglin, you know, wanted you know assurance that okay, I'll tell you the way into Gondolin, but you know this is how it's going to be for me. And we know that it was during the ce- celebrating, yeah, you know, they were celebrating the Gates of Summer. It was a it was a festival, so there was light guard on the walls. And seeing this on screen would be incredible. That it's at night, and you see this small glow just beyond the mountains. This orange-red glow. And it gets bigger and bigger until the mountains are just covered with this light, and it ends up being the forces of Morgoth. Now, Morgoth was patient. He had received information about the location of, or the area where Gondolin could have been, and he was careful in his planning. He really wanted to make his strike be worth it, that it would do its job. And the fall of Gondolin lasted a number of days, but having this imagery again of this glow around the mountains and seeing a horde of dragons and balrogs and orcs and trolls and, you know, wargs or whatever, everything just being amassed against this city that, if it was any other day, would have provided a better defense, but they were caught off guard. 
But the mercy provided, or that Tolkien provides, is how Tuor and his wife Idril and their son Erendil, you know, being saved. And a select other uh, refugees, but specifically that family, because through that family there would be great lineage produced. And it would be through the efforts of Erendil that the Valar would take back their abstaining from the affairs of the children of Iluvatar. You know, not inter interceding, if you will. And if it wasn't for this event, this devastating event of the fall of Gondolin, the Valar may never have had the realization that they needed to assist uh, the free peoples there in Beleriand. The other favorite story of mine was the War of Wrath. I loved it because, well, the ending, I guess. The, f the second defeat of Morgoth, just having that imagery of Morgoth hiding in the deep tunnels of his... Um, of his under his fortress and having his feet hewn from under him and his crown made into a collar with that great chain and Gynor again pronunciation sorry and Gynor and and Gynor <sighs> correct me I'd get yeah, anyway and uh, thrust into the door of night into the timeless void. I just would love to see that on screen. I can visualize it, and you know, and maybe that's maybe that's enough. But I'd also like to see it visually shown just Morgoth, this Valar, hiding in his deepest pits or tunnels and hearing the hosts of the Valar coming for him. And as we can recall, he was the only one of the Valar who, would, who knew fear. And so showing that just his face, his countenance, knowing what was inevitable, yet still trying for mercy. But nope, gonna take your crown and beat it into a collar around your neck, and take the great chain of Angonor and throw you out into the timeless void. You know, that just would have been fantastic. And I could imagine Sauron, like, hiding, in the, like, being in the same room and hiding and witnessing that, and being like, oh, dear, I'm not going to move or breathe right now. I don't want that to happen to me. The next one would be, a favorite story would be the duel with Sauron. So we're skipping ahead thousands of years as we know during the second age at the beginning sauron he kept to himself he was hidden before he revealed himself as anatar the lord of gifts and so the long and short of it the what the rings of power were created he made his one ring and he rampaged across kalenarthon and eriador and was stopped at the gray havens by a massive numenorean army and we know many centuries later, he was taken captive into Numenor and effectively was the instrument of its downfall. And, and about a century or so later, he takes up power again in Mordor, wages war against the free peoples. The war of the last alliance of elves and men transpires, and it's brought to the very doorstep of Barad-dûr and Mount Doom, where Sauron duels Elendil, Isildur, Gilgalad, High King, and I think uh, Elrond and Círdan. I think it's unconfirmed with the latter two, but regardless, I would love to see that duel with Sauron, because Elendil and Isildur would have great reason to hate that guy, to hate this fallen Maiar, this fallen angel being uh, the instrument of so much destruction with the destruction of their home, as well as the you know close destruction of their kingdoms. And Sauron had taken Minas Ithil uh, not long before, but 
seeing that duel, I wonder how long it lasted. Because Elendil and Isildur, they were Numenorean. The Numenoreans were the greatest warriors on the planet. And having Gilgalad High King, who had been around a long time, um, having his own uh, hatred towards Sauron because he served Morgoth, who effectively was the reason why for the destruction of his family, the sons of Feanor, uh, Gilgalad being their the last descendant. Unfortunately, killed by Sauron, and of course, Elendil was slain, but Isildur was able to defeat Sauron. But just seeing the rage on the faces of these characters, dealing with this, you know, Morgoth wannabe, if you will, Morgoth light, but still powerful enough to, uh, um, to cause their deaths, which happened with most of those that fought with him. But again, I wonder how long it lasted, having these great warriors fight against Sauron. Sauron was defeated by Luthien. He was defeated by uh, the great hound, uh, Huon. Huon? Huon. Hound of Valinor, remember. Because we knew Huon was given that special special abilities um, by the Valor. But anyway, so Siren was defeated again. Of course, we know not permanently, but he was put out of commission for many centuries. The other, or the last favorite story I have in the Silmarillion is the disaster of the Gladden Fields. So once peace has been established, Mordor defeated... You know, Sildor settles things in Gondor with his with his nephew and takes his knights back to Arnor, but they get waylaid at the Gladden Fields or by the Gladden River, and he is ultimately defeated because, well, in part because he had the ring. And the ring did not want to be with them and called out all evil around it as it could, and that's why the orcs just swarmed towards Sildor because of, of the ring. But how Tolkien describes it as a, a classic last stand. The Numenorean warriors were just unmatched, and they were only defeated when multiple orcs piled up on one. But seeing their shield wall, um, just seeing the terror, you know, once they know they're at hope's end, their strength is spent, and they've already slain presumably hundreds of orcs, but just even more keep coming, and they know they're not going to last so the shards of Narsil are preserved, but Isildur is slain, and his body's never found. Now, one of the things I liked, I believe it was in Unfinished Tales, or the appendices of Lord of the Rings, I can't recall, where Aragorn and Gimli and others enter Orthanc, or Isengard, and they come across some secret closets and uh, treasures that Saruman had stolen, that his servants had stolen. And they found the chain that held the One Ring, and that was, it seemed implied, that Saruman had found Isildur's remains, his bones. It had been uh, thousands of years, so apparently maybe some of his bones were left, maybe not, maybe he was preserved in some way, but they said that Saruman, I think it was out of malice or disrespect, probably burned Isildur's bones and kept the, the chain that held the One Ring. I just like those heroic last stands. Like 300 Spartans is a classic one, but I just like heroic last stands where the the good guys just effectively clean house as much as humanly possible. But in the end, their strength is spent, but they leave this life with heads held high and clasping their swords. Like it's very heroic and it's very, very Tolkien because he understood uh, that method of uh, storytelling. And had a great appreciation for heroism, for heraldry. 
Uh, he wasn't a big fan of the firearm. You know, dealing death from a distance, it's, there's less honor in that. But those are my favorite stories. The Battle of Unnumbered Tears, Fall of Gondolin, The War of Wrath, The Duel with Sauron, and The Disaster of the Gladdenfields. Now, the last part of this discussion is what would a Silmarillion miniseries look like? Peter Jackson's uh, trilogy, I adored. Obviously, there were variations, there were liberties taken, but as he said in an interview with Charlie Rose, and that uh, he also just, it, it was obvious, he didn't want to inject his beliefs or opinions or elements into the story. He wanted it to be true to Tolkien as possible. Now, obviously, with a book of that size or any book, regardless of size, it's difficult to capture everything that's included, everything a character says. So he selected, he and his team selected scenes that would greatly support the, the story that needed to be told, that supported the theme. That followed again with A Hobbit uh, to an extent. I mean, that was like Bilbo's comment, butter scraped over too much bread. That seemed like The Hobbit. That should have been two movies. But having a series on The Silmarillion would need to be a miniseries. You can't make a trilogy out of that. There are too many stories. You would have to have the overarching plot or theme of the Silmarils and the Noldor seeking vengeance and wanting what's rightfully theirs from Morgoth. Like having that, but then including Tolkien's three great tales of Beren and Luthien, the children of Hurin, and the fall of Gondolin. I think it would be probably at least six episodes. I don't know how long, maybe 90 minutes each. But done right with the right director who shows respect and homage to Tolkien truly and capturing what he intended for people to understand and to love and to appreciate, you can make a great Silmarillion miniseries. I'd love to see the first episode about the music of the Ainur and how Morgoth rebelled. I'd love to see that. I'd love to see Ungoliant. I mean, we had Shelob, but Ungoliant was many times larger than Shelob. I would have loved to, to see that. And the Balrogs, you know, after Morgoth is screaming, the Balrogs hear him and they come in and with their whips of flame. I would, that whole thing I would have loved to, I would love to see. The War of the Last Alliance, obviously, would be really good. Um, the, like I said before, the disaster of the Gladden Fields, I would, I'd love to see that one. But it would have to be done you know, that was well-funded and treated with great respect towards Tolkien, his legacy, his legendarium, and showing that timeless messages of good versus evil, of betrayal, revenge, of sacrifice, camaraderie, brotherhood, family, you know, all these thematic elements would have to be present. Unfortunately, too many times modern sentiments enter in and moral relativism that can really hinder a book as old as The Lord of the Rings. It can really hinder its message. It can hinder its intentions and therefore make it exclusive for a particular subset of society instead of across the board, which The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion, Lost Tales, and Finished Tales, etc. has crossed cultures, languages, country's boundaries, uh, theology. It's across the board welcomed, appreciated, and adored. Now with that, I'll conclude this episode speaking on the Silmarillion and my impressions of the book, favorite parts, and if it was put to screen, what I think it should look like. Uh, as always, I thank you for listening to me, and I'll try to put more of these 
episodes out regarding Tolkien and my first impressions of reading his stories and opinions on them. In my first episode on discovering Tolkien, I spoke the truth that discovering Tolkien's works really changed how I perceived reading books, literature, and rekindling my imagination and having greater appreciation for the world around me and recognizing that in spite of the many cultures and many languages that are in our world, there are unifying principles of sacrifice, love, trust, and bravery, camaraderie that is felt across all, all lines. And that's one of my biggest takeaways from Tolkien's works. So with that, I'll close this episode. I thank you again for listening, and I will talk to you in the next video.